Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Was Barry Goldwater mentally unstable? Would his presidency have ushered in a nuclear holocaust? The 2016 campaign conversation is soaked with talk of Donald Trump's narcissism and speculation about how it overwhelms his circuitry. In 1964, Barry Goldwater's opponents also said the GOP nominee was mentally on the tilt. They drew a direct line between the turmoil in his skull and the survival of the nation. These are the stakes. If you opened your New York Times newspaper in the summer of 1964, as any right-thinking person would, you would see a full-page ad that read, Is Barry Goldwater psychologically fit to be President of the United States? It was an ad for something called Fact Magazine, which purported to tell special truths the corporate press wasn't telling you. And one of those truths was that Goldwater was clinically unfit for the presidency. Here's a little more from that ad. 1,846 psychiatrists answer this question in the next issue of Fact Magazine. What do psychiatrists think of Goldwater's fitness to keep his fingers on the atomic trigger? Of his tendency to view issues and people from extremes as either all good or all bad? Of his veneration of the military, his aversion to compromise, his mistrust of strangers, and the impulsive statements he later modifies or denies. That ad and the issue that Fact Magazine produced led to a $2 million lawsuit by Goldwater, which helped set the precedent about what you could say and what you could not say about presidential candidates. But perhaps the most important difference between then and now is that history gives us some insight into a quality that Goldwater had and which Donald Trump has yet to really show voters, and that is the capacity for restraint. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our whistle stop today is July 4th, 1918, and a young nine-year-old Barry Morris Goldwater is overflowing with the American spirit. He is also in the company of ready weaponry. You see, his mother kept a revolver under her pillow in case of invasion. So young Barry took the available revolver and emptied it, bang, 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 into the ceiling to celebrate the day 142 years earlier when, in the course of human events, it became necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which had connected them with another and so assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them, which is to say the Declaration of Independence. So here's how Goldwater described this moment of excitement on the 4th of July in 1918. The noise created quite a commotion at that hour of the morning. Mun, that's what Goldwater called his mother, awakened by the noise, called her neighbors to say that it was just Barry celebrating the 4th of July. 
Let's stop here for a moment. Oh, that Barry, he's just in a celebratory mood. Hell, on Arbor Day, he wheeled the howitzer around and blew Betty's Oldsmobile straight through the back of her garage. That Barry. The book that this anecdote comes from was written by Stephen Shattag, who was to Goldwater what Ted Sorensen was to uh, John Kennedy. He was an advisor, a writer, a campaign manager. He was credited with writing Goldwater's famous book, Conscience of a Conservative. This book that the anecdote comes from about the senator, who is also an avid flyer, is simply titled Barry Goldwater. But the subhead is my favorite. The subhead is Freedom is His Flight Plan. This is one of those ancient books that has sat forever on my shelves, and I could very, uh, 15 or 20 times I've thought about throwing it away in one of our periodic house cleanings because we just don't have enough shelving. But every time I've kind of held on to it, and now, boy, I'm going to hug it like a pillow, under which I may or may not have a revolver. But anyway, back to our account of young Barry and the revolver and the plaster falling from the newly perforated ceiling. Here's from Shattuck's book. Her husband, shocked by the noise, and somewhat startled to see his nine-year-old boy with a smoking revolver in his hand, pretended he had not been affected by the unusual action until the ceiling overhead began to drip whiskey. Baron, which is uh, Goldwater's father's name, had two kegs carefully stored on the second floor, where he believed the summer heat would aid in the aging. Goldwater got in trouble with his dad, and here's how the senator recounts it. It's a tough thing to get punished for an accident. There would have been no penalty for firing the gun or making the noise or waking up the neighbors, but because I accidentally spilled his booze, I caught it something fierce. Can we just interject here again and say that the Goldwater household sounds like it's pretty fun? I mean, <laughs> weaponry, whiskey, celebrating of an important national holiday— Either that, or it sounds like the setup anecdote to one of those VH1 behind the music stories where, you know, the drummer was playing with revolvers and whiskey, and then suddenly he died. Anyway, this is a heartwarming tale of patriotism, of course, to our modern ears. But in 1964, this anecdote was evidence. It was evidence in a bill of particulars produced by Fact Magazine. In a special edition, the magazine's cover was white with simple lettering on the front, I'm not so good on my on either, either my fonts or my uh, type styles, but it looks like a sort of Times Roman uh, at about 28-point type, and it reads, 1,189 psychiatrists say Goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president. And there's an exclamation point at the end. Inside the 64-page uh, periodical, there are sketches done in dark black pen. Various car sort of cartoonish, almost mad magazine style cartoons of Goldwater looking dementedly menacing. Here's how the essay that precedes the testimonials from the psychiatrist begins. That the senator is divorced from reality is unfortunate. That he may soon be able to divorce all of us from reality is terrifying. It's not written, the opening essay, by a psychiatrist, rather by the magazine editor, Ralph Ginsberg. It follows a form as if its outline were to take a list of anecdotes about Goldwater, and then a list of all the, psych the pathologies in the psychiatrist's manual, and then just sort of drew a line between all of them. So here are some excerpts from the essay. He sees enemies everywhere, trusts no one completely, and suspects even his closest friends of betraying him. He is rigid and dogmatic in his beliefs and cannot tolerate ambiguities. Is obstinate, uncompromising, and rebellious, not for the sake of principle, but, but for fear that a show of imagined weakness would permit his enemies to take advantage of him. 
This essay even makes simply being in a car aficionado seem kind of dodgy. The senator himself, it might be mentioned here, has an adolescent mania for mechanics ever since childhood, and today he drives not only a Corvette Stingray, polluted with gadgets, but all sorts of aircraft. This is one of those great accusatory sentences that we're familiar with today from partisan media. It essentially asserts that something is bad and then lines up pieces of evidence afterwards that actually on their own don't show us anything. So this is what a lot of partisan press watchdogs do. The liberal Mr. Smith never misses an opportunity to applaud Democrats. He notes, for example, that Barack Obama is president and that people stand when he walks into the room. Ginsburg accuses Goldwater of having, quote, unmistakable symptoms of paranoia with delusions of persecution. In many areas, he is completely divorced from reality. It accuses him of having an extensive affection for firearms also, which you'd think is where that evidence, the uh, story of the 4th of July would be brought in. But, uh, but no, that's not. Ginsburg uses that story to describe how Goldwater is so distant from his father. So he likes firearms and he's distant from his father, which, of course, in the in the essay of the magazine is supposed to lead us to the conclusion that he is deeply on the wobble. This magazine that I hold in my hand before we delve too much more into the content is itself a historical oddity or is interesting, you know, I guess I should say, in the history of media. It has it has its place in the history in terms of what you can say about a candidate. And in that sense, it was new. But it also has all of these parallels to what we see in the press today. It was secretive. Uh, like today's websites, it pretended to offer special knowledge you couldn't get elsewhere. And yet it used the language and tropes of the world of standards of the mainstream media that it mocked to give itself authority. That's why, in this case, that's, that's the, the diagnosis of psychiatrists. And we see that all the time today, where you use the uh, validated facts or authority figures from the from the kind of world of regular standards, or even the language of the world of regular standards, but you do it in a way that is totally without the normal standards. So you get kind of both. You get the benefit of delivering secret knowledge, but the kind of sound of thor- of authority that you, of course, lack because you're not the New York Times or CBS News. So where did Fact Magazine come from? Its founder, Ralph Ginsburg, was a boundary pusher in all that he did. He printed a magazine called The Housewife's Handbook of Selected Promiscuity, and he had a magazine called Eros, which was dedicated to, quote, the joys of love and sex. Eros, which is what put Ginsburg on the map, is super tame by today's standards, but in 1962, two years before Fact Magazine came out, It was very scandalous, and Ginsburg got into trouble, as he later would with Fact Magazine, not because of exactly what he printed, but because his sense of marketing overshot the rules more than the actual publication did. The content of Arrows is quite fascinating. It's very high-minded. It's beautifully reproduced. These beautifully reproduced sets of portraits of Arrows, the Greek god of love and desire, reproductions of Le Florentin, Florentin? I don't know. Playing cards, French playing cards with naughty drawings on them. There's a story about the agonies and ecstasies of a stripper, a historical essay on history's most notable bastards. The title of that story is Conceived in Rapture with Fire Bigot. There is no uh, mention of Jon Snow in that article. There's also a photo essay in Eros, challenging the taboo of interracial love. Eros also printed some previously suppressed uh, nude photographs of Marilyn Monroe. So, 
The Spirit of Eros, which is secret and important conversations and topics no one else will touch, but that are nevertheless deeply true, right? My favorite piece is that, or favorite section of it is in three pages of ads from the past devoted to quote-unquote weak men. So piled up in black and white over three pages are these little tiny sort of matchbox size ads with small print that you used to find in the back of sort of third-rate magazines or comic books. And these were old-timey remedies for what were called lost manhood. One uh, remedy for lost manhood says, a discovery of a remedy has been made that restores lost manhood and gives man the vitality of a lion. Several of these, several of these ads have very small type and then next to them what look like a series of Brooklyn baristas, all with very heavy beards and rigorous mustaches. There are definitely no images of men pulling a calf out of a ditch or roaring their pickup truck uh, or, you know, joining together with their other friends in flannel playing acoustic instruments the way we see in Viagra commercials. But it essentially sent the same message. Ultimately, Ginsburg was charged with obscenity, not so much for the content of Eros, but because he'd sent out marketing material to get subscriptions promising that whatever Eros did, it would be too hot for the Postal Service. Well, you know who paid attention to that? The Postal Service. So they brought legal action against Ginsburg, and he was actually sentenced to five years on charges of violating a federal statute that regulated obscene advertising. And the court fight over it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it hinged essentially on the, not only content, but on his promotion. The Supreme Court held basically in the end that the purveyors, that, that quote, the purveyor's sole emphasis is on the sexually provocative aspects of his publications that could justify a finding of obscenity for the content that might otherwise be marginally acceptable. Ultimately, uh, Ginsburg would serve eight months in jail in 1972, and he wrote a book about it called Castrated by Eight Months in Prison. But the distinction there is important. In other words, if he put these pictures and all this talk in the magazine to examine the subject on its own terms, that's fine. But if he's doing it to try and break the rules and is knowingly doing it to break the rules, that's where where he ran afoul of the obscenity laws. So why is this important? So Eros magazine in the sexual realm is promoting the idea that it has a special and super authentic take on what's really happening. And they're just prevented from saying so because of the mores and standards of the time. Well, so imagine that in the public policy politics realm. So in 1964, that's essentially what Ginsburg tries to do with Fact Magazine. He would create a magazine that would write what was too hot to put in print elsewhere, a sort of prose version of Eros. And so Fact wrote about, one story was about how Coca-Cola was a menace to the health, how tobacco advertisers bribed American newspapers to suppress tobacco's threat to health. Ginsburg wrote about how ministers felt their jobs had, had changed from being spiritual community leaders and family counselors to being social directors. The magazine also included a story on Detroit's ruthless disregard for car safety, which was researched, reportedly anyway, by a young Ralph Nader. It also included a story called Let's Get Rid of the Star-Spangled Banner. They wanted to replace it with America the Beautiful, which I feel like I read every six months in some magazine, including perhaps even Slate magazine. What interests me here is almost more than the specific attack made against Goldwater, which we'll get back to, but it's the way this edition of the magazine and the magazine itself is a part of the history of conspiracy and facts in campaigns. Fact Magazine promised to tell you the real story, the true story, the one that was being kept from you, and that is so alluring. That's what the partisans do in the media today. 
And in this way, the ad that was in the New York Times for fact in 1964 was like those tempting ads you see on the right hand rail of a website when you're reading the real story. And then on the right hand side, you see that, you know, Britney Spears was caught with a flamethrower and a marching band of Koreans or something. And they they sort of whet the appetite. They're super tempting. And on the one hand, they promise knowledge that you would never get in the whatever organ you were reading. Your original purpose was to read something more reputable. And by embedding in the more reputable publication, they're getting a double benefit. They're getting, one, the exposure to an audience that only reads a more reputable publication. But then they also are a foil or use the reputable publication as a foil because they've got the kind of special knowledge that's just too hot for the New York Times. To get Fact Magazine, you had to send a little coupon away with your check, and that obscurity made it much more revealing. It wasn't mainstream, and therefore it wasn't tainted by the corporate interests. Of course, the downside is that because it wasn't mainstream, there were no standards, context, methodological accuracy, and attempt to balance bias, which isn't to say remove bias. We'll just have that little detour here. Of course, you can't remove bias. We all bring our biases to things, but there is a professional tradition in mainstream media, or there should be any way of trying to be on the lookout for your biases and then try and correct them or guard for them when you're doing your work. None of that stuff exists in the secret magazine you have to send your special coupon and check to. The allure of secret stories, of course, is that allows you to A, seem informed above everyone else. You know the real truth. B, there's no proof needed because your story is so special and so inside. Of course, there's no proof because if there were proof, then people would know. And these are the stories that people don't know. And C, no one can prove you wrong because uh, anyone who tries to prove you wrong is not legitimate because they're part of the mainstream, corporate, compromised gang that's been suppressing this secret news. And it's in their interest to suppress the secret news because it threatens them. So any of you who've ever read anything on the web ever are familiar with that line of reasoning. Fact was an early incarnation of now what's a much bigger part of our media. You had to do a lot more work back then, send away your little coupon with your check. Now you just read Twitter. Conspiracy is the preferred channel for most ideologues, of course. Because, and, and the problem is, though, that sometimes they're right. Sometimes the stories they tell are right. And they're too hot for the niceties of the mainstream media. The car industry was lax on safety in 1964. Tobacco companies were in league with newspaper advertisers. So that was what gave fact real legitimacy more than just the normal legitimacy that come with conspiracy theories. But, of course, just because the source is right about some things doesn't mean they're right about everything. But if a publication presents itself as letting you in on the inner sanctum of truth, then it can be hard to sort of deprogram those who've been led into the club. And we're learning that now in psychological studies of partisans that show that people who believe something, they've come into the club because something that a, a source has told them seems deeply true to them, then they cling sometimes more desperately to that thing or to the club that has given them access to the first set of information. They cling more closely to it when presented with contradictory information. So facts in that world don't matter unless they confirm a person's existing biases. So here are a couple little detours. We're going to get back to Goldwater in a minute, but I'm just fascinated with fact and its place in the world. First, on conspiracies. The great essay, The Paranoid uh, Style in American Politics, was written in response to the Goldwater candidacy by Richard Hofstadter. And it's worth reading because it almost exactly matches what a lot of critics on the left and the right are saying about Trump supporters. 
So in this essay, Hofstetter talks about those who believe, quote, all our ills can be traced to a single center and hence can be eliminated by some kind of final act of victory over the evil source. So that's what allows uh, people to believe that a single candidate can solve all the problems. If the warnings of those who diagnose the central treachery are not heeded soon enough, writes Hofstadter, it is argued, we are finished. The world confronts apocalypse of a sort prefigured in the book of Revelations. Michelle Bachman recently said that if Hillary Clinton wins, it will be the last election in America. So what's interesting here is that Hofstetter's describing conservatives. He's talking about the right wing. He's definitely not talking about Republicans. I almost misspoke there. He's talking about the fringe of the right wing. And in fact, in his essay, or in his book that contains the essay, he points out, you know, this is the fringe of the right. And it's really out on the fringe. Um, What's interesting, though, is that he's talking about the fringe of the right. Fact Magazine is here using the conspiratorial instinct to make their case on the left. Let's see how Hofstetter characterized the paranoid style on the right and see if Fact Magazine meets those criteria. Heated exaggeration? Check. Suspiciousness? Check. Conspiratorial fantasy? Check. The second point on my little detour here is that Hofstetter's great book, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, makes a case in its introduction for the study of political events from a psychological perspective. So this is happening in parallel to Fact Magazine, which is why I'm going on this detour. Hofstadter writes, politics was taken as an area in which people define their interests as rationally as possible and behave in a way calculated to realize them as fully as possible. This is what Hofstadter calls the rationalistic assumptions of the old way of looking at politics. But he's writing now about something new. It became important, he writes, to add a new conception to the older one. Who perceives what? public issues in what way and why political life acts as a sounding board for identities, values, fears, and aspirations. So the political scientist Hofstadter is coming to a new understanding, and all political scientists at the time are coming to a new understanding of the way in which politics is a place on which people project their fears, their worries, their concerns, that the role of rational discernment and uh, thinking through problems isn't as big a role in the political life, that there's a lot more emotion involved. And so what interests me about that is that what Hofstadter is saying is that political history is moving towards thinking about the psychological aspects of voter behavior as perhaps even more accurate, or at least as hugely contributory to political analysis. And so just as that's happening, Fact Magazine's rolling along here with its own psychological insight and arguing essentially that it's more valuable insight into the tickings of the GOP candidate's brain. So I see connections here, and that fascinates me. Sorry for all the detours. Now back to our magazine. So the American Psychiatric Association warned its members when it heard that this is what Fact Magazine was up to, not to participate in the survey, because obviously you can't diagnose a person without actually physically seeing them or treating them or asking them questions. But that didn't stop the conclusion drawing from the psychiatrist. So after the initial essay in the 64-page Fact Magazine, there was then a compendium, a collection of the assessments of the psychiatrists. On page 36, here's what one psychiatrist wrote. To me, the outstanding sign of Goldwater's instability is his radiation of diffuse but continuous hostility. He exudes no warmth whatsoever. Through his hostility, he has become a focal point around whom all discontented, paranoid elements can unite. This psychiatrist's conclusion connects with what Ginsburg writes in the 
introductory essay, which is that Goldwater was, quote, backed by a well-organized, blindly ruthless, totalitarian, secretive, and powerful movement. In other words, psychology is connecting everybody. Page 31, a psychiatrist writes, Barry Goldwater's mental instability stems from the fact that his father was a Jew while his mother was a Protestant. This ethnic and cultural split accounts for his feelings of insecurity and spiritual loneliness. Page 44. Another psychiatrist weighs in. In my practice, I have had in 10 years at least 10 ham radio operators. Goldwater was a famous fan of the ham radio. In fact, in a great film on the 64 election modeled on Teddy White's making of the presidency series, Goldwater is in his hotel room at the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco, where they have brought his ham radio so that he can kind of kill time and blow off steam while he's dealing with the business of getting the GOP nomination. Another amazing thing that's in that documentary is when Goldwater hears he's won the nomination, he essentially uh, performs as if he is in blackface. Watching it in uh, 2014, when I first saw it, it is startling. And we won't go on a detour about Goldwater and race, because it's complicated, as those of you know who listened to the 64 convention episode. It's a startling thing to see, however, in this modern age. Page 26, another psychiatrist writes in, I have a bumper sticker on my car which reads, Remember Munich. I'm scared, and I'm fighting like hell against this damn fool. Remember this about Goldwater supporters. Strategy against the paranoid fringe must be very carefully worked out. A frontal attack on paranoids causes them to band together and become more efficient. Not every psychiatrist played along on page 46. Here was one stickler for the rules. Please arrange an appointment for Senator Goldwater with our office at his convenience and mine. At that time, I will be pleased to do a psychological evaluation as this is the only way a proper, spelled in all caps, evaluation can be done. And some psychiatrists turn the tables like a boss. Here's one. If Goldwater were elected, there would undoubtedly be an emotional maturation that goes with his responsibility of the office and the added growth of the ego under such circumstances. Neither Truman nor Johnson were prepared in their psychological makeup to fill the presidential image. There are many individuals capable under the specific stress of leadership suddenly thrust upon them to rise to the occasion. Under battle conditions, a lowly corporal as the highest-ranking survivor will, even without the necessary training, step into the shoes of the platoon leader. Here's the good stuff. It is the intellectual community that has the disturbed attitude about Senator Goldwater— the roots of this are deep and all-pervading. Gifted and creative people have always found a greater security under a paternalistic system, whether it be a university, corporation, or a social government. Their relative inability to adopt the mechanisms of a competitive society gave them the justification to look with horror on the so-called excesses of the free enterprise economy. For in business, other values seem to operate. It is not the one with the most knowledge, but the one with the most daring who will achieve recognition. Senator Goldwater represents, irrespective of his statements, the individualistic and self-sufficient human being who prefers to rely upon his own resources rather than be supported by a paternalistic agency. This is in keeping with the original pioneer spirit and Yankee ingenuity. Boom! That's a psychiatrist dropping whatever the psychiatrist equivalent of a microphone is. So, as we all know, Barry Goldwater lost quite handily in 1964. 
And four years later, in 1968, he was in a Manhattan courtroom suing Fact magazine for $2 million. Ginsburg had tried to stop the suit, telling Goldwater's friends that it would expose him. He even wrote to William Buckley, the conservative columnist and co-founder, I guess, of the uh, National Review, and said, according to Buckley, who would later, later write about all of this, Ginsburg quoted, quoting Ginsburg, saying, I shall be forced to reveal such information about him, Goldwater, as I have heretofore withheld from the public. Anybody uses the word I shall and heretofore is, I suppose, a fellow to be reckoned with. Anyway, the trial lasted about three weeks and centered on the question whether the magazine had, if Ginsburg was well-knowing of the facts and that he basically, well-knowing that the facts he printed were false. Goldwater, in describing the case, said, I don't object to a little orange peel or maybe an eggshell, a banana peel or a bottle cap or an empty oatmeal box. But when it becomes a pile of garbage, then I'm concerned. I'm fascinated by the specificity there. An empty oatmeal box. Goldwater said that if anyone could sit down and plan something like this, meaning the magazine, good men would no longer run for office. Some of you may remember that that's precisely what Alexander Hamilton said when his affair with Mariah Reynolds was exposed in the 18th century. And this is how Goldwater's Lawyer put it at the opening of the trial. You must say to Mr. Ginsburg, you've gone too far with throwing mud and garbage. You've gone into the gutter. We're drawing a line against this sort of muck throwing, and you're on the wrong side, and you're going to pay for it. Goldwater sat in the courtroom just six feet or so from Ginsburg. He was described as lean and with an outdoors look about him. His attorneys put psychiatrists on the stand testifying to Goldwater's mental acuity. One pointed out that as a jet pilot, Goldwater had to have excellent physical coordination, mental judgment, and, and, and nervous control, as they called it, as if, as if to prove that Goldwater several months earlier had actually landed his campaign plane after it had a technical difficulty in a kind of a touchy moment. This reminds me of an anecdote from Roger Mudd's book about his time at CBS News. The former CBS News correspondent described a time during the 64 Goldwater campaign when the pilot took the campaign into a sharp dive and roll to do a flyover of a rally, just like Donald Trump did in Alabama. And many in the press corps who don't like that kind of flying or any kind of flying, really, were like Mud describes them as scratching and clawing at the walls of the plane. And after things leveled out, Goldwater got onto the address system and said, well, I guess that separates the men from the boys. Goldwater's uh, team of lawyers had him read letters that he'd written home during World War II to his wife and children to show that he was normal even in wartime. As for Ginsburg, his defense was that his investigation wasn't uh, slander. It had to do with evaluating Goldwater for the office for which he was applying. So that's why it was important, as Ginsburg said, to look into his obsessive concern with showing his manhood. Quoting from Ginsburg, Goldwater had continually to prove to himself that he was tough and super masculine. And so the editor's argument was, therefore, he couldn't sympathize with the weak in society. Ginsburg also argued, quote, the psychological makeup of a presidential candidate, his subconscious and his fitness to make awesome decisions in the nuclear age are vital matters for the public to know. They also testified that Goldwater had two breakdowns, which relied on an expansive interpretation of some comments his wife had made, and that he received testosterone shots when he was feeling tired. Low energy. Low T. Ginsburg's attorney also went after Goldwater, pressing him about his antics and the kind of crazy stories that, that gathered around him. Didn't you and a dentist pull your dog's tooth out one night after a few drinks? He questioned the senator, and the senator responded, yes, but that the dog had a broken tooth, and that the dentist had put a good gold cap on it. 
Then Goldwater was asked, did you ever have any anxiety about your manhood? Goldwater responded, no, I never had any doubts about it. And uh, that got a big laugh, of course, in the courtroom. Goldwater's attorney had called Burns Roper, who was the son of Elmo Roper, a famous pollster, to testify to the shoddy nature of the poll and the fact that the magazine had willfully manipulated the results. 2,400 or so psychiatrists had replied. 657 had said, yes, Goldwater was qualified. 571 had said they didn't know enough to make a determination. But nevertheless, the magazine didn't present those findings in a balanced fashion. And the magazine neglected to say that only 20% of the 12,000 who received the questionnaire even responded at all. In other words, yay or nay. So since 80% of the profession didn't answer... It was wrong to state that the findings were somehow a consensus view. The poll also did other tricky things, like it neglected to say whether the psychiatrists were expressing a professional or a personal opinion, and that in framing the question the way they had in the questionnaire sent to the psychiatrist, the question was asked, do you believe Goldwater is psychologically fit? And then the boxes afterwards were labeled no and yes, instead of the usual order, which is yes and no. So the Ginsburg team, in the face of this expert analysis by a pollster, had a little fun with Burns Roper, which should seem familiar to those who have heard about skewed polling. Whenever a team is losing, this is an anecdote that comes up. Anyway, tell us, Ginsburg's defense lawyer said to Burns Roper, with all your scientific safeguards, which candidate did you say was going to win the 1948 election? And this is from a Times account of the trial. Mr. Roper grinned wryly and replied, in early September, we said Dewey's so far ahead of Truman, he's in. And so it was senseless to go on polling. That served as a prelude to Mr. Steinberg's argument. Mr. Steinberg is the defense attorney for Mr. Ginsburg. That served as a prelude to Mr. Steinberg's argument that the main object of a poll, no matter what the methods or techniques, was to get, quote, the right answer. He said, quote, the little boy with a bent pin who hooks a big fat fish is a better fisherman than the man with a $500 Abercrombie outfit who catches nothing. <laughs> it's quite a... What a defense of a poll, which is basically, who cares what the how the poll was done as long as it got the right answer? But how do you know the right answer if you don't do the poll the right way? Anyway, in the end, Goldwater won. He won the judgment from the jury of nine men and three women. And basically, the jury was convinced that this was done with malice. In 1964, the Supreme Court had held that anybody could make defamatory remarks about a public official and could get away with it as long as malice was not proved. And malice, the court said, was limited to the calculated lie or reckless disregard for the truth. So while a lot of people might have thought the Goldwater charges in the article were wild, the Supreme Court, in its most recent libel decision, made, I think, a month before this case, made clear that reckless conduct is not measured by whether a reasonably prudent man would have published or would have investigated before publishing. The reason, though... Goldwater won was that his team had been able to prove that the work was not simply sloppy work done by journalists trying to give an accurate portrayal of psychiatric evaluation, but that the work had been done and framed in a way that purposefully was malicious. And the results were cooked to give a, a specific damaging impression. And in a way, Ginsburg overdid himself with the hype in the same way he had with the, ma the magazine Eros. He'd been sloppy, but by making such a big claim, by overstating his case and making it seem like the entire psychiatric profession was against Goldwater, he opened up the line of attack that he could only have reached that conclusion based on what he actually received. He could only reach that conclusion if he'd been acting out of malice, if he'd been putting such a thumb on the scale. 
Ginsburg charged that Goldwater was merely trying to use the trial as a springboard for his next Senate campaign, and so he was. The senator announced at the end of the trial that he would, in fact, run again. Now, the jury did not give Goldwater the full $2 million. He only gave him a dollar in compensatory damages, but it went on to award punitive damages of $25,000 against Ginsburg and 50000 against Fact magazine. So Goldwater not harmed as much as he said, but punishing the magazine. In a column written after the trial, once again, the ongoing debate about the role of psychiatric terminology and science in the in evaluating public life gets a, another going over. Uh, this is from an account in the LA Times written by Raymond uh, Moley, a columnist for the Times, writing about the verdict. The entire attack was an excellent example of the extent to which Freudianism has penetrated some aspects of psychiatric diagnosis. The attack he's talking about, of course, is Fact Magazine. Freud has plunged a terribly dangerous element into the situation. Freudianism has already penetrated education and social sciences, and the fact publication threw this mishmash into politics. For Freud, in his writings, exercised great poetic license. Almost any paragraph is contradicted by another paragraph. Anyone attacked with this weapon is almost helpless. And the damage to rational living is increased because any amateur can use this gibberish to attack an opponent. So Moly was heralding a blow for rational thought and not the obsessive investigation of things by the psychiatrist's worldview or the psychologist's worldview. So what came out of this was something called the Goldwater Rule. In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association adopted a new rule declaring it unethical for any psychiatrist to diagnose a public figure's condition, quote, unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement. The reason that psychiatrists aren't supposed to make judgments about candidates without examining them is that it undermines the profession. The the analysis that's done in a face-to-face meeting has meaning. There are proven questionnaires that have predictive value that are a part of the science here. And psychiatrists also shouldn't simply encourage the kind of winging out of opinions because it makes it seem like any old person can do that. It also, by printing what Fact Magazine did and, and by doing this today, either in evaluating Donald Trump's brain or Hillary Clinton's health, is that it uses the language of medicine and it, and it applies it to people in a way that takes medical terms, which are based on specific criteria, and morphs them to be used simply for the purposes of political warfare. Medical illness is basically not a choice, but if the terms are being used to describe behavior that people do have a choice over, then it it stigmatizes people who have the condition not out of choice. So the final point here is about restraint. The whole argument against Barry Goldwater was that he was too crazy to be president because he couldn't stop his impulses. This is a familiar argument we hear about Donald Trump. And I think it connects to two other things that were happening with Goldwater at the time. One is a story that I'm going to tell in its own Whistle Stop episode later, but I think it bears on this one. Not long after the Fact magazine appeared in October of 1964, the Harris poll came out with Johnson at 58% and Goldwater at almost half that, uh, with not very many undecideds. So inside the Goldwater campaign, they were basically feeling like the only way they could win is if they had some kind of dramatic act. And Goldwater was bristling against efforts to throw the long ball. Rick Perlstein's account 
here is wonderful as always, as all of his books about the rise of the conservative movement. This one is Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of American Consensus. Perlstein reports of a moment where Gold- Goldwater essentially says, you know, I'm going to lose on my olden terms. So stop trying to make me do things that are crazy. But then on October 12th, the campaign receives an anonymous tip that Walter Jenkins, who's LBJ's personal assistant and had been his assistant for some 25 years, had been arrested with another man on what's called a morals charge at the time. He was caught in the men's room of the YMCA, two blocks from the White House. The, the police were there and they had a peephole in the shower where they could basically were doing sting operations and they caught Walter Jenkins. Now, Jenkins was a man that LBJ had said was the vice president in the charge of everything. So the reason Goldwater had an opportunity here was not just to tie Johnson to unsavory behavior, and and homosexuality was, of course, not well accepted at the time, but also Jenkins had a serious position, and that meant that Jenkins could be susceptible to blackmail. This is a quote from uh, Perlstein writing about the connection between homosexuality and blackmail. Weakness of moral fiber may make him susceptible to the blandishments of foreign agents, was how a government report described the connection between homosexuality and blackmail. The Goldwater team, without talking to the boss, started working on slogans for songs and bumper stickers. One of them was, either way with LBJ. Another was, all the way with LBJ, but don't go near the YMCA. Another one, which played on the fact that Jenkins always was the last to leave uh, and turn out the lights. LBJ, light bulb Jenkins, no wonder he turned the lights out. So the other problem with this story is that Jenkins had been arrested several times. So it raised questions about whether Johnson had knowingly brought a security risk into the White House and the Situation Room. And here's Johnson from his tapes in a conversation with Abe Fortas, his uh, legal counsel. They're going to play this security angle big, said Johnson. They're going to say, here's a man that sat in the highest councils. Who else might he have something to do with? What secrets might he give away? But Goldwater said no when his team brought this to him to use and exploit in the campaign. Or he said no-ish. Jenkins had been a member of the Air Force Reserve Unit that Goldwater had served in, and Goldwater said he wouldn't do anything to add to the pain of Jenkins' wife and six children. That's the way the Goldwater forces tell it. It may be too generous. Goldwater still did do speeches in which he referred to the curious crew around Johnson, but there were also a number of Johnson officials who were in big trouble at the time and had scandal, Bobby Baker and others who had scandals associated with them. So you could talk about the curious crew, and it wouldn't necessarily specifically be about Jenkins. And there's evidence, certainly, that Goldwater showed restraint at the time and compared to what politicians would have done at the time. There is certainly evidence that Goldwater exercised much more restraint than the crazy person, crazy using the term that Fact Magazine used and others, depicted in Fact Magazine. But we'll return to the Jenkins story later in another whistle stop. There's a lot going on there. Another story that supports this argument about restraint and Goldwater is that it's in a Politico article that was written by Mark Updergrove about Johnson and Goldwater and race. It's a great story, really perfect use of history to reflect on the modern time. And it makes a similar argument that I'm making about restraint. On July 24, 1964, just three months before Election Day, Goldwater asked for a meeting with President Johnson. And there is the meeting is recorded, and all we know is that it's about race. But the recording is not very good. So in 1971, Goldwater gives an oral history to the LBJ library, and he recounts this 15-minute meeting. And this is what he said. I told Johnson I wanted to discuss the racial problem, that I thought it would be wise not to be pushing it. Those were hot days, you know, and he agreed with me. 
is so Goldwater is basically saying, I'm not going to take advantage of the riots in the streets to beat you in this campaign. Think about that for a minute, whether that would work in this year's campaign. In a telephone conversation with his attorney general the day after sitting down with Goldwater, Johnson remembered the conversation similarly. And I'm again, I'm quoting from this Politico story by Updegrove. Goldwater came in, said Johnson, just wanted to tell me that he was a half Jew, that he didn't want to do anything to contribute to any riots or disorders or bring about any violence because his ancestry. And he was aware of the problems that existed in that field. And he didn't want to say anything that would make them any worse. So here you have Fact Magazine and you have Democrats saying Barry Goldwater, including Johnson with the famous Daisy ad that we started our episode with, saying that Goldwater was unhinged, that he had these impulses that he could not check and that the presidency would be dangerous in his hands. And yet at the time when no one was looking in at least two instances, this crazy Goldwater did A, the right thing, B, something against his own political self-interest, and C, that demonstrated exactly the kind of restraint that everybody said he lacked. That's it for this episode of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcastatslate.com, or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store about the Whistle Stop podcast. It helps us spread the word and makes us uh, feel good if you say nice things. Our producer for Whistle Stop is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network, so check out the entire roster. And what a roster it is! Of Panoply Podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher, we can't forget him, that's Brian Rosenwald, who sleeps with a copy of Richard Hofstadter's The Age of Reform under his pillow. For the Whistle Stop Podcast, I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation and author of Whistle Stop, the New York Times bestselling book which will make a weak man strong like a lion. Add fluffy hearts to your latte milk and impress your friends when left out on the living room table next to your Rilke poetry volume. I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. 